And I like the line that then says, only Jesus will I trust. First okay. Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24. Reading from the English Standard Version. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, open up our eyes, our minds, our hearts to your truth, to what this passage would teach us, how this passage would feed us, how through the scriptures we might have the comfort that we need as those who would follow you. Guide us into that which is true, your truth. Lead us not astray in any way. Help us to keep our confidence and our faith firmly fixed in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we commit the hearing of the word and the living out of your word to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we um, reintroduced this series on Elijah and Elisha uh, from First and Second Kings because the last message on Elijah took place before the Advent season and before the small series in January. And there we saw that God had moved Elijah by ordinary means, not miraculous means, from the eastern side of the Jordan in the Kidron Valley all the way west to the Mediterranean Sea, to the country of Sidon, the land of Baal. And we noted three things that described Elijah's circumstances once he arrived. First, we noticed that he was in a dark place because Sidon was the headquarters of Baal worship in the ancient Near Eastern world. And the town that he was located in, the town that he came to, Zarephath, actually means furnace or the refining as in a furnace, which symbolically represents the fact that Elijah's faith is going to be refined there. Secondly, Elijah is helped by, and he becomes a help to, a very unlikely person. Uh, God is going to provide for him through a starving widow with a starving son who are on the verge of death. 
And then thirdly, the means by which this takes place, both for Elijah and the widow and the son, is this multiplied provision. God miraculously supplies flour and oil to sustain their lives during the most extreme nature of this famine until, in fact, the promises until rain comes again upon the earth. Now, as we'll speak about this later, this event of meeting Elijah is for the widow at the birth of genuine saving faith, faith in the true God of Israel, a faith that rescues her out of the darkness of paganism, which is a reminder that this whole series has as an underlying theme this matter of paganism. Not only the paganism that we could see in the ancient biblical world, but even now within the 20th century. And that's why the overarching theme of this series deals directly with paganism in a lot of different ways. And that overarching theme, we've stated this way, that even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and within our culture, the call to all believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. That's the big picture perspective. But more particularly, as we zero in on this passage, our more focused theme, the theme that focuses upon God and how God is revealing himself uh, in the life and ministry of Elijah, can be stated this way. That God does what he does with us, for us, and to us in order to require of our faith that we would believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Now, we're going to see that theme from this passage in three particular ways. The first would be this. God brings tragedy to the household of faith. Second, God brings testing to the household of faith. And then thirdly, God brings truth to the household of faith. We'll look at these one by one as we move through this passage. Now, this this first truth that God brings tragedy to the household of faith is a hard truth. But it's not at all a strange or foreign truth in terms of what the Bible consistently reveals about the character of God. For instance, the book of Job. The book of Job is about his struggles in the midst of great tragedy that God has permitted and allowed. And even later on, uh, Job admits, you have brought this upon my life. God brings tragedy to the household of faith that was Job's household. Or we could also think about Jacob being sold by his brothers uh, into slavery. His father, Jacob, as a kind of a background theme to the last 12 chapters or so of the book of Genesis. The, the kind of background theme is the pathos, the extreme pain and emotion and heartbreak that Jacob suffers. Not understanding what his sons have done, but thinking that his son Joseph has been slain and killed. God has brought tragedy to the household of faith of Jacob. But I want you to think about Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, those five chapters, which none of you have ever had a small group Bible study on the book of Lamentations. You probably couldn't get through the first chapter without being crushed. <laughs> right. 
that book, one of the least studied books in the Bible, is written in the style of a funeral dirge because it's written about the death of Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah writes uh, personifying the voice of the city of Jerusalem, personifying the voice of Israel herself, which is destroyed by Babylon. The citizens, citizens are being taken into exile. And the prophet Jeremiah presents this lament as that voice, as one who's experiencing this greatest of all tragedies. But then, in chapter 3, Jeremiah switches from speaking on behalf of the city to then speaking about his own personal lament as the one true prophet of God who's experiencing all of this. I want to read to you Lamentations 3, 1 through 20. I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So this truth about God is written very large in the Bible, that God brings tragedy to the household of faith. And so here it is in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 and 18. The truth lies on the surface of the text. We have the death of the widow's son. It is a great tragedy, especially to someone who's only come to faith so recently as she has. The God who has saved her son from death by starvation has now taken her son's life. And the question is asked, well, but how do you know she's a believer? Why do you speak of her household as a household of faith? Well, because it's what we have actually seen in the earlier part of the story. We've already seen what happened when Elijah first arrived in Zarephath 
and met this widow. So a quick recap on what took place. If you go back to verse 10, you see that Elijah sees the widow outside the city picking up sticks. He calls out to her. He asks for a little water in a vessel. And her response is to do as he asks in accordance with her ability to do so. But immediately before she actually leaves, he makes a second request, verse 11. He calls to her and says, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He asks for only a small amount. He's fully aware of the famine and destitution and scarcity of food. Now, in her response, verse 12, we see the beginning of faith. She says, as Yahweh, your God, lives. Now, this phrase is the beginning of an oath. The widow recognizes Elijah as an Israelite. She takes this oath according to Yahweh as the God of Israel. But this is unexpected. After all of King Ahab's work to make Israel a Baal-worshipping and Baal-centered nation, just like the nation of Sidon, this Sidonian woman yet recognizes Yahweh, the Lord, not Baal, as the true God of Israel. She affirms Yahweh, the Lord, as Elijah's God, and thus Elijah as the Lord's servant. So, swearing this oath in Yahweh's name, she tells Elijah why she cannot fulfill his second request. And the reasons are the pathetic conditions of her extreme poverty. There is no baked bread in the house, only a handful of flour, only a little oil in a jug, just barely enough for one last meal for her and for her son, which they will eat and then they will die. And to this, Elijah responds in verses 13 and 14, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Now the proof of her faith is what we read in verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. She went back to her house, took the last of the flour and the last of the oil, all that was left, and made the bread cake for Elijah. She took it to him to feed him. This was an act of faith and obedience to the word of the prophet. This act demonstrated her faith in the true God. To trust Elijah's prophetic word was to trust the word of the Lord. And this was the day salvation came to her house. All of that to say about what this story teaches, that God brings tragedy to the household of faith. This is a deep revelation about God, but it's so totally necessary. If we deny this to be so, if we think tragedy spells the end of faith, or that tragedy counts against God's existence, or that tragedy counts against God's love, 
then we might as well drop into the abyss of atheism. At the same time, there's always a context to God bringing tragedy to the household of faith. Think about Joseph and his brothers. Here is Joseph's own God-given insight in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then back to Jeremiah in Lamentation. The verses that follow the passage I read, verses 21 through 24, tells us that Jeremiah's understanding that all the tragedy that he was going through, nevertheless, was not the end of the story. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God brings tragedy to the household of faith. But he always does it for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. As Paul declares in Romans 8, 28. It's better that we know this to be so. It's better that we believe this and trust this before the days of tragedy and hardship come. But then we move on to the second idea. God brings testing to the household of faith. And we begin to see the connection between Tragedy and testing. Let's note that when tragedy strikes, our faith is being tested. This is another large truth about God and his people. Peter describes this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God is in the active business of testing our faith through various trials that actually bring us grief. Look at how this is displayed in both the widow and in Elijah. In verse 18, in response to the sudden, unexpected, tragic death of her son, she says this to Elijah. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? I want us to see something very clearly here. Her statement is the statement of deepest grief. She is in this deepest grief over the death of her son. She almost lost him months before. On the very day that Elijah first arrived, she was preparing to see her son die. And then she was going to die too. 
But God intervenes. God feeds them with life. And she has life again with her son. But now, this has been snatched away from her. Her son is dead. She's overwhelmed with loss. And awful things come to mind. When you are dealing with the holy prophet of the holy God, all you can think of is your own sin, which she does. And now she's grieving and guilt-ridden, and she fears that the God who saved her is now the God who's going to punish her for her sins. And we need to look at it for what this is. It is her faith being tested to a maximal degree. But does her faith fail? Listen to what one very popular commentator has said. Quote, It is unfortunate that the widow's faith should fail, as indicated in verse 18. Now, when I read that earlier this week, I was shocked, even astounded, at this terrible misreading of the poor widow's statement. No, this poor mother's faith did not fail. She's being tested. And this mournful complaint she utters against Elijah is the index of the test of her faith, not the indictment of faith's failure. Her heart is broken, but not her faith. Her faith is undergoing the most severe trial that any mother's faith could ever undergo. Because when Elijah says to her, Give me your son. She does so. Without a further word. In total obedience to the prophet of God. Because if her faith had been broken, if her faith had failed, she would not have trusted her dead son's body to Elijah, the servant of the Lord. In spite of her broken heart, her faith yet sees that her only hope is in the Lord. But Elijah's faith is also tested. We see this in verse 20. When his first petition for the dead son echoes the widow's own deep sense of grief and loss. For the first prayer that Elijah cries to the Lord is this, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Do you want to know what makes this story so real, so believable, so true to reality and true to our faith in God? When you are the Christian who comes to the brother or sister who has just suffered tragic, unexpected loss of someone so dear as a son or a daughter, and they turn to you with, why? Why? Why did God do this? Why did God let my child die? And then you find that in your own private prayer soon afterwards, you echo those same questions. Why, God? Why did you do this? Why did you not save this child? Why did you allow this child to die? When your Christian sister's grief 
washes over you. And you so feel the anguish of what has happened. Then your own heart feels like it is breaking. But this is your heart breaking, not your faith. It is faith being tested. And Elijah's faith is being tested. For his doctrine of God is perfect. In his prayer, he acknowledges that God has killed this child. Life and death are in the hands of God and God alone. And his sense of indebtedness is right as well. He has sojourned with this widow. She has given him room and board, even though God is the ultimate benefactor and supplier. But she has been the one who's made his food every day. And she has felt the debt. He has felt the debt of her faithful service to him. And so he feels this sense of bewilderment that also possesses the widow. God, why and how can this possibly be? What does this mean? But the tested faith always returns to trusting in God. When the faith that is tested is true faith, it always returns to trusting in God. The widow acts in faith when she gives her dead son to Elijah. And now Elijah acts in faith as he prays a second time in a different way that shows his attitude of trust and confidence in God. So in verse 21, he stretches himself out upon this dead child's body three times, and he prays three times. O Lord my God, let this child's soul come into him again. I know the ESV has the word life but it is actually the word in Hebrew that means the word soul. In Elijah's walk with God, since the time that he met King Ahab and pronounced the curse of the drought upon Israel, God has been constantly sustaining him with every provision he has needed, with every protection he has needed. And God has now provided him and protected him through the widow's hospitality. There was only one thing that Elijah could pray and could pray for that would reveal to this widow how great the God of Israel actually is. And that was for the resurrection of her son from the dead. And so Elijah prays three times. Let this child's soul come in to him again. And God listens to the voice of Elijah. The soul of the child comes into him again. He's brought back from death to life. The tested faith turns to God and to God alone for God's way forward. And then we see as we come to the end of this passage that God brings Truth to the household of faith. Verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Three comments on this verse. 
First, we need to hear what the widow says as indicative of the fact that she has come to a new and deeper level of conviction and truth. And this test of faith proves to be more precious than gold in her life. When she says, now I know, she's not saying that before she didn't know this, but rather it has this kind of meaning. Compared to what I knew before, and how deeply I knew this before, and how much I trusted you, compared to all of that, in light of what I now understand about you, it's like, Lord, now I really, really know this to be true. I really know that the word of truth is in your mouth. Lord, it's like one thing to save my son's life, to keep my soul, from, my son from death. It is something so much greater to have him return to me from the dead. Now I really know. And this is the work of God who tests our faith and who so often does so in the crucible of a broken heart. And when that tested faith holds on to God, the deeper and greater experience of God and his truth come to the household of faith. But secondly, this story illustrates what James says about true religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, if God visits widows and orphans in their distress, if this is who God is, then we can have no true religion in ourselves unless we are to be like God. Thirdly, the truth of the resurrection here is given. The significance of what God does with the widow's son is profound. Now, in paganism, Baal was supreme as the Lord of life the God of all fertility, the God of all reproduction. But in actuality, there was a God greater than Baal in paganism. And this was the God Mot, the God of death, the God of the underworld. In every case of life, Mot conquered Baal and brought every living thing to death. Plant life might die and then come back again, but friends and family and husbands and sons, they die and they're gone forever. Death has the final victory over life and Baal has no power to stop this. But Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, Elijah's God is greater than Mott. He's greater than death. He who saved this son from death is just as able to raise this son from the dead. And this is now the deeper anchor of this widow's faith. That the God who has given her faith is the God who is the resurrection and the life. Her son, being raised from the dead, 
points to the greater son, the son of God, who suffers the pains of death to be raised again to the newness of life, to give life to all who place their faith and trust in him. For in the tragedy of the cross, the innocent son of God dies in the place of sinners. God pays the ransom price of our sin, purchasing life for all those who come to him in faith. So God brings tragedy to the household of faith. He does this in order to test faith. He does this so he might reveal more of himself, more of his truth to us in our walk with him. For God does what he does with us, for us, and to us in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your faithful word and thank you for this passage, for your deep love that gives us the Son of God. But the tragedy of the cross is ultimately the triumph of Jesus over death that gives us life. Go with us then, Almighty God, as we would desire to live for Jesus above all. In his name we pray. Amen.